3617, respond to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Day. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk, the only podcast in iTunes dedicated to you. You, the listener, you've got the earbuds in, you've got the speakers turned on, you're driving your car, jogging, running, whatever it is you're doing, I'm working for you the best that I know how. Now, here's an interesting thing that you might want to know. If you've been a listener of the show for a while, we are getting very, very close to a half a million downloads. So it's, you know, we're just within a a month or two of getting a half a million downloads. So here's what I would love for you to be able to do. If you would not only subscribe to the show, if you haven't already subscribed, please do that in whatever directory you use, but also share the show, share it on social media, talk to some friends about it, do something, just do your part. Um, And let's see if we can get this pushed over a half a million downloads, half a million listeners in 2018. So we're really, really close, and I think that you can do this, but I'm going to I'm gonna need your help. So if you could do that for me, I'd very much appreciate it. doesn't give me any money, doesn't give me anything, nothing like that. It's just we hit a goal. I like goals, and, and if we can say that we have a half a million downloads in 2018, that would be fantastic. It would just be fun. So that would be great if you would do that. So today's show... I'm going to do a little continuation of last week's show. I kind of told you I probably would. Uh, I took another portion of this of this live training that we did, and this time we're going to talk about uh, obstacles in in prosecution, things that you can do that well, things you cannot do that won't screw up a prosecution, but things that you can screw up on that will screw up a prosecution in the case. Talk a bit more about that in just a second. I, I do want to remind you that if this is November. And when this comes out live, it's just the first full week of November. And in two weeks starts the last Medical Legal Online Academy for 2018. That starts November 17th. The price for that academy has got to go up in January. I've got no choice on that. Everyone else has increased prices around me for for hosting and file storage and everything to do with it. So I have to increase it. So we're going to be increasing that as uh, all of us came together, the team at the Academy, we talked about it. We kept it as minimal as we could, uh, but we uh, did have to increase it. So that's starting in the January, 2019 course. So if you at all are wanting to get involved in the uh, MLDI online Academy, and then subsequently the certification exam, national certification exam, it would be in your best interest to get into this November course. All right. So uh, that's coming up very soon. So go to coronerschool.com. You can find out more about that, but I want to make sure you know it because I don't want it to come as a surprise to somebody. Also, I want to remind you again of the monthly membership option. If you're a member of the Academy, new courses, PDF version of magazines, special discounts, roundtable discussions, a little bit more active to our instructors and to me and things to respond to. And so there's a lot you can have by being a monthly member. And then, of course, if you're an ABMDI registered or a diplomat or fellow, 
you need your continuing education. By being a member, a monthly member, then you get a new course every single month and you'll have the the hours that you need come to time. That Now, if you're really getting close, I guess you've got to do some other stuff. But you can get this every month and get a lot of hours over the next couple of years. So anyway, you get all a bunch of extras. It's, it's well, well worth it. Just just go to DIT. Uh, just go to the Academy, Death Investigation Training Academy, and just go to the... Uh, e-learning and you'll have three choices on the e-learning page one of those is monthly membership and you can look at that you know i'm just trying to tailor it to you whatever you guys ask me to do i try to figure out how i can tailor it to make it work best for the masses and so uh, that's what i've done with this and so if you have any ideas or topics for not only training courses but also for podcasts uh, i'd love to get a guest on if if you would like to come on the show know somebody who would like to come on the show uh, please reach out to me. I will be glad to have them on the show as long as we can uh, turn it into some type of a training topic. Make sure somebody gains something from the time that you spend with us on the show. Then that is what I'm interested in. So uh, please reach out to me and we'll get some people on uh, the show to give you some uh, different insights and some, and maybe even some better insights, even some things we've already talked about. Maybe you know somebody else that can weigh in on that. So what about today's show? So this is kind of an interesting topic here. We're going to talk about obstacles in prosecution, preventing obstacles in prosecution. But understand that as a coroner or medical legal death investigator, your rights to question someone, uh, your, your ability to search is a little broadened because uh, you're doing a job to find a cause and manner. And, and, uh, Coroners and MDIs are not necessarily fairly well trained in ear interview and interrogations, but you do talk to suspects. And a lot of times you talk to witnesses, things like that. So, so there is that. But there are things you can do to mess up a case. There's things you can do to mess up evidence. Um, and I understand that most coroners and MDIs don't get search warrants, uh, but these a lot of times may be involved if there's a search warrant and you're there on a homicide situation. But then also... There are coroners and medical death investigators that are also police officers. Okay, that's where I fall into. So I carry a commission with the police department and a coroner for many, many years. And so because of that, and 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 I, I'm in I'm in different jurisdictions, and so you know I'm unique. I realize that to some extent, but not completely. There are a lot of police officers slash deputy coroners or coroners out there. You've got to be careful to make sure that you are acting under the appropriate hat that you're wearing and those lines can get clouded. So if you're working a death as a coroner, let's say you're a deputy coroner in a county somewhere, you're also a police officer, deputy sheriff, whatever. You're a deputy coroner. When you're there, you're acting as a coroner. The minute you cross the line and acting as a police, then you've got a whole nother set of circumstances and laws that you have to abide by. But then also... You can get clouded in the you should have known or you should not have done. Now, that's arguable by, an, by a judge. For instance, let me, let me give you this example. As a police officer, if you start asking someone about a crime or a death and they start confessing that they have done something to cause the death, then there's a gray line there as are they in custody or do they perceive custody? And should you stop them and advise them of their Miranda rights? Now, again, that's arguable depending on their perception of custody, not your perception, their perception. However, as a coroner, 
or, or MDI, let's say you're talking to the husband of a victim, a dead victim, and the husband starts making comments and starts talking about things that he's done and he caused her death. As a coroner in MDI, you have zero requirements to stop them and advise them of their Miranda rights. Because number one, you can't advise them of the Miranda. I mean, you could advise them, I guess, but you have no legal statute to do that. Uh, they cannot be in custody because you are not a police officer. Uh, you're acting as a coroner or MDI. Now, there again, when you're wearing, uh, you can't wear two hats at the same scene, but if you're a deputy sheriff and they know you as a deputy sheriff, let's say you're in a small community, then do you have to stop and you may not have to stop and advise them of the rise if they're just making spontaneous utterances. But where does it where does that line get drawn in that they know you're a cop, even though you're saying you're there under a different auspice? So it can get clouded, but there's a lot to this. And so today I'm going to use this to take this section of Mark Bailey talked about search and seizure and conversations and Miranda and, and evidence control and integrity and all the stuff it takes because police officers and coroners do the exact same job. Well, they do different jobs, but they want the exact same end. That's what I'm trying to say. They both, they have different jobs that cooperate with each other to get the same end. So we both can strengthen or weaken a case by our actions when it comes to evidence and conversation, things like that. So that's what this show is going to concentrate on. And it's a great show. He does a great job at breaking it down and explaining it very easily. So with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and jump right into the middle of the conversation with Mark Bailey about preventing obstacles in prosecution. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. Before we get rolling on this next thing, so again, I told you this is a basics class. We, we provide other courses. Uh, we, we have about 45 courses that, like I said, are state approved by post for Missouri. And we have a few specialties. And one of those specialties is, is jail law, jail operations, but another is interviewing and interrogation. And we have some good classes on detecting deception, interviewing uh, witnesses, <clears throat> eyewitness testimony. There's some really good classes in there. And I, if it were up to me, I would spend a whole lot more time on those things. But this is a class that Darren's asked us to teach today, so uh, we're going to do that. But I really am interested in the investigative contact, how we initially make contact with someone. What, what are our goals? What do we need from this person? What does this person need from us? Uh, how do we elicit cooperation? And it's, it's just fascinating to me. But this is where every investigation starts, right? Is that initial contact with either a victim uh, or a witness, uh, gathering that initial information. And so if we do that effectively, if, if we show up looking, you know, presenting a professional image, exuding confidence, then we're more likely to get good information from, uh, from the person that we're talking to. And obviously, this will be helpful that those interactions, those positive interactions are more helpful in, in good case resolution, developing a good case. Uh, ensuring that our information is good and that, that our evidence is, uh, is good. And so our image is important. And we're talking, I told you, this is going to be heavy on uh, professional image and professional conduct. So 
Uh, professional image and integrity are obviously key in eliciting, eliciting whatever information it is that we need. And so we got to constantly think about our image and, and, and try to understand better, do we portray confidence and do we inspire confidence? Can, can we gain information that someone may not even know that they know, that they may not even know that's in there? Can we get that information out of them? And so to do that, you have to, uh, in many ways, inspire confidence. You have to you have to portray your own, you know, your own confidence, and you have to inspire confidence in, in the person you're talking to. But there's a lot of newer techniques, if you will, uh, that allow us to get to information that people may not even know that they have. Uh, they may have seen, uh, they may have witnessed a crime and, and not realize how much actual information that they possess. The, their initial story is going to be their version of what they saw. Uh, and so uh, one of our goals is to inspire the confidence in them that gets us deeper and deeper into the information that they, they may possess. Again, we're talking about the agency's trustworthiness. Is their reputation sound? Does our agency have a sound reputation? And, you know, depending on where you work or where you come from or even where you grew up, you may know of departments that have a lesser reputation than others. And that's one that we've constantly got to work on uh, to make sure that we are, that we're contributing positively to that uh, to that reputation and not detracting from that reputation <clears throat> and is our reputation trustworthy you know uh, we're going to talk about rules of evidence here in a minute and making sure that we have that we conduct good searches but we've got to be trustworthy to 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 continue to do that in an effective and efficient manner so it starts with ethics and integrity, having the rules and then being able to stick to the rules, following those rules. And so these things have to start a long time before we come an investigator. And so if, if, if there's flaws in our agency's reputation or our reputation, it will negatively impact the public's perception and potentially just cause us to have other obstacles with the public that we shouldn't have to overcome. Uh, so we try to try to shore those up every time we can. So let's talk about the rules for a minute that govern an investigation. So first question here is, why do we investigate? So, so let's just talk about the purpose of an investigation. And so these, these things should be pretty obvious, but it's important to talk about them. Obtain information that will provide clues for further inquiry. So typically the initial story has limited information and we're looking for more information. We're looking for other leads. Uh, so to obtain information that will provide clues for further inquiry. Next is to establish facts on which to base probable cause. That's incredibly important. And then to develop enough evidence to convict the perpetrator. And so uh, it's important that we understand each one of these steps and understand, again, what the guidelines are, what the boundaries are uh, in, in our duties. So there's a lot of rules that apply. We've talked about some of those to, to our profession. Th these rules impact every step of the investigation. And so we commonly refer to these rules as rules of evidence. And if we violate these rules, we're going to have, we're going to have trouble, right? Uh, obvious trouble. We're going to have trouble getting convictions. We're going to, we're going to have trouble in that we create a negative image with the community. So 
it's important that we don't violate these rules. So, so we've got to train on these rules. That's other classes, right? This is just this is the basics, but it's important in your own department, in your own agency, that you train on these things to ensure that your folks, going back to those ethical dilemmas, know what the rules are, know what the boundaries are to begin with. And if we violate these rules, then we're going to have evidence that's potentially inadmissible in court. And if you lose a piece of evidence, you, you could be looking at uh, losing your case. Uh, so we want to prevent these obstacles to prosecution anywhere we can. And that, again, starts way back with, uh, with our training and qualifications and handling that case appropriately so that the prosecutor can do his job. If we've not violated any of these rules, if we've stayed within our bounds, all the evidence is admissible and we get uh, the conviction that uh, the state is looking for. Yeah, we... Yeah, we wouldn't ever get there. Uh, you know what I mean? We wouldn't get to the point where we've got the wrong guy. Uh, if we followed the rules, to me, that's why I say it's kind of, it's obvious and it's almost unstated. And I understand your point. Uh, but if we follow the rules, like he said, we've got the right guy and we want to make sure that the prosecutor can do everything he needs to do. So let's talk about deception. Deception is something that uh, I think the public doesn't necessarily understand about our profession. There are times where it's appropriate for us to employ deception. And I'm, uh, I've spent a great deal of, of time researching uh, how to spot deception and how to use that deception to your advantage. But there are times uh, doing undercover work where it's imp- appropriate for us to employ deception to get in with the wrong folks for the right reasons so that we can find out what's going on with a specific crime or a specific network dealing with crime. But those times in law enforcement that we can employ deception are limited, right? We don't do that all the time. We're talking about a professional image, departmentally and personally. And so deception, most of the time, is is not appropriate. So we got to make sure that we're employing it where it is appropriate and uh, not employing it uh, at an inappropriate time that will potentially risk a, a conviction or, um, or an investigation. We obviously can't employ deception when it pertains to evidence, right? So this gets back at this discussion. We can't falsify evidence. We can't create evidence. We can't falsify reports. We can't use deception there. That, But again, to me, this goes without saying. And so every piece of information that we submit, that we turn in, has to be true and accurate to the best of our beliefs, right? Uh, and some of these we swear to. And so it's important to make sure that every single one of those steps is done truthfully and honestly. If our investigators engage in prohibited acts, it jeopardizes the, the legitimacy of the evidence. Ultimately, we can have officers who violate these rules, and now they're subject to a criminal investigation, and we got to handle those appropriately. And so, again, getting back to understanding the boundaries, understanding the guidelines and the rules, and sticking to the guidelines and the rules, remembering that they're not always going to be popular, Sometimes our officers aren't going to know what to do at that time. They need backup to, to ensure that they make the right decision. Sometimes those are 
decisions are going to be incredibly unpopular. And then sometimes the wrong course of action is appealing. And those, you know, those typically lead to bigger and, and more serious violations of the law when, when an officer gets to the point where they go down a road of, of taking, taking what is, what may look good at the time, but taking the wrong course of action. Uh, so here's some prohibited acts. Obviously, we can't create evidence or plant evidence. And I, I told you earlier about uh, the report I read yesterday where several cases had been challenged on appeal based on an officer 20 years ago planting evidence. Uh, we can't lie in court. Obviously, we can't lie in court. So when we're testifying, everything has got to be well prepared, well thought out, and we've got to respond with truthful answers every time. Uh, we can't lie in reports. In our notebooks, our uh, field notes, we don't lie on administrative uh, or investigative reports. And we also don't lie in any administrative or civil proceedings. And that's, that's just one of those things that we deal with every day. I mean, that some people don't have, excuse me, the same commitment to, to integrity that others do. And that's, that's one of those things that I tow a very tight line on. If, if there's an integrity issue, it's going to get solved before we ever have uh, an additional problem that comes to my attention. So another reason to go right back to ensuring your officers know what the boundaries are and ensuring that they, that they stick uh, to those boundaries. Often in an investigation, we have to conduct a search. It happens every day. And uh, we do that to obtain physical evidence. And so we have to ensure that our searches fall within uh, the restrictions of the Fourth Amendment in order to be considered reasonable and therefore be admissible in court. We also have either warrant searches or warrantless searches that we've got to that we've got to think about. And this is not a con law class. We're not going to delve into this, but you have to think about every single step and make sure that you're operating within uh, the boundaries of the of the Constitution and the rules of evidence. So warrants can be challenged, right? If if investigators approach evidence that's not credible or uh, claims that are not credible, potentially they don't get the warrant. I mean, we've seen recent, uh, recent examples of warrants being obtained based on faulty information, and that's never good for law enforcement as a whole. But if, if, if investigators use deceptive information, that could lead to the fruit of the investigation or the evidence obtained being suppressed Typically, those warrants are not going to be issued. Sometimes they are, and they, they're challenged later. And we've got to look at uh, the wholeness of that part of the operation or that part of the investigation as we make our decisions on what we're, uh, what we're asking for warrants on. So it's up to the defendant to prove uh, the defect, right? Uh, they, have, they have the burden of proof to show that a warrant is defective. I don't know how often y'all see this happen. I don't think it's something that happens very often to have a warrant shown as being uh, being defective. The, the one I'm thinking about is a national level issue right now politically, but it's not in court either. <clears throat> so some of the motions that attorneys use uh, in court, we talk about a motion to suppress uh, based on one of the following situations. The warrant was improper upon its face or illegally issued, including the issuance of a warrant without a proper, a proper showing of probable cause. And next, that the property seized was not that described in the warrant 
and that the officer was not otherwise lawfully privileged to seize the same. We've been doing this for a long time, and so we're, you know, typically every department has a, a way of doing this that weeds out a bunch of these questions, a bunch of these potential issues. And, and w- once they put the warrant together, there's usually a few levels that that uh, warrant language has to go, or that request language has to go through before it, uh, it gets to, uh, to the source for uh, granting us the warrant. And so I think we do a good job overall making sure that the right information is there, the right uh, verbiage is there, that we've thought through why we're doing this and what the impact is later uh, in the investigation. Also that the warrant was illegally executed by an officer and that in any other manner the search and seizure violated the rights of the person involved. So we're always looking out for the rights of the folks that we're, that we're dealing with. And we, we had a conversation about, about the jail and folks who are incarcerated earlier. Uh, but it's important to know what folks' rights are. Again, this gets back to knowing the guidelines, knowing the boundaries. And that's a much uh, longer class there if we're going to spend time on that specifically. Also, there's, we have warrantless searches, right? So uh, a search without a warrant is presumed unreasonable and the evidence will be excluded unless it falls into one of the exceptions of the warrant requirement. And so there are some exceptions, but it's recommended that if possible, a search warrant should be obtained. And so also, uh, warrantless searches should be considered permissible under exigent circumstances. Uh, and the Supreme Court has, has outlined those exigent circumstances. So here... Uh, are the reasons for warrantless intrusion. A warrantless intrusion into a home may be justified by a hot pursuit of a fleeing felon or imminent destruction of evidence or the need to prevent a suspect's escape or the risk of danger to the police or other persons inside or outside the dwelling. And so if hot pursuit is not part of, uh, of the situation, in absence of hot pursuit, there must be probable cause that no, or, or I'm sorry, that one or more of the other factors were present. So, so there's a lot of equations going on here, right? Again, getting back to this needing to know the rules and being able to wade through these rules really, really quickly and make the right decision. In assessing the risk of danger, the gravity of the crime and the likelihood that the suspect is armed should be considered. So uh, we're expecting our officers daily to make these decisions in in a very um, stressful environment, potentially. And sometimes, go back to those three ethical dilemmas. Sometimes they didn't know what the rules were. So you take some of these situations where you think of being in hot pursuit or not, or the potential destruction of evidence or safety of an officer. There's a lot of things that have to be weighed out really quickly. And sometimes an officer can just make the wrong decision. And if they do, it's on leadership in that department to make sure that we take care of those issues at the lowest possible level. And then what we want them to do is make the right decision with that information. Um, And again, going back to those ethical dilemmas, knowing that sometimes the wrong choice can be incredibly tempting. And we just got to make sure that we're looking out for each other, uh, for ourselves, and for our people. So sometimes we ask people for their uh, consent to search. And there, there's, there's a lot that, that goes into that as well. If uh, a consent search uh, produces evidence, the burden of proof falls on the prosecutor to show by preponderance of the evidence that the consent was freely and voluntarily given under the totality of the circumstances. And so 
There's some debate on people's mental state, depending on what their cognitive impairment might be, on whether they can willingly and voluntarily give consent. Is it the right person to give the consent? There's a lot of questions there that we got to make sure that uh, that we're walking through appropriately as we gain consent to search. So sometimes these are challenged, uh, and sometimes are challenged with with the following. Was consent voluntary given, voluntarily given under totality of the circumstances? Was it voluntary? Did they feel like they could consent? So go back to that presence. Is your presence too forceful? Is it appropriate for what's going on in that situation? Uh, next, did the scope of the search exceed the consent given? If they say that you can search this and you search this and that, potentially you're you're challenged on on that. Did the person consenting have authority or apparent authority to give the consent? Are you talking to the right person? Is it the person who has dominion over whatever we're, we're looking to search there? Also, interviewing suspects and witnesses. It's important that uh, the subject be, be Mirandized if, uh, if we're asking guilt-seeking questions and knows, know that they have a right to an attorney. And so that's a Fifth Amendment protection that's, uh, that pertains to self-incrimination. It's just important that we know who we're interviewing and for what purpose. And we, again, that's one of the boundaries that we've got to stay within and make sure that, that our officers understand. So Miranda applies if the person is in custody and that we're asking guilt-seeking questions. But we also got to think about their perception as well. We can oversimplify this sometimes because we deal with it on a daily basis. Looks pretty simple, uh, but the courts tend to view the circumstances from the suspect's perspective. So we've always got to be thinking about their perception, the witness or victim or suspect's perception. So then it can be subjective, right? It's based on who we're talking about. But the courts consider whether the suspect felt he was in custody and not free to go. Is our presence one in which we have kind of hemmed somebody in or made them feel like they've been backed into a corner and they're, and they're not free to go? Miranda, going back many years, was intended to ensure that someone didn't uh, have the feeling of being inherently coerced. Uh, and, you know, for us not to set an atmosphere uh, that, um, that, that potentially violates that right against self-incrimination. And so the Miranda requirement only exists when the suspect believes that he or she is in custody. Also, Folks, Sixth Amendment right to counsel, right to attorney also applies to any person feeling they have become subject of an investigation and are being asked guilt-seeking questions. The Sixth Amendment protects the accused right to counsel in any criminal proceeding. Very important. Extends to folks who are incarcerated as well, uh, that sheriffs have to deal with that, folks coming in and out of their jail. So... Two, two significant elements there are accused and criminal proceedings. So de- the definition of accused and then the definition of criminal proceedings. And so for us, when interviewing suspects, a violation of the Fifth and Sixth Amendments could result in, again, suppression of good evidence. If we do this wrong, then it's not good evidence. So when a suspect requests a lawyer, we have to obviously terminate the interrogation. And sometimes that's kind of a a rookie mistake that you see when they ask for an attorney that the investigator sometimes keeps going, even with kind of, you know, around the side, if you will, uh, request to continue talking. Uh, we have to, to terminate uh, the interview or interrogation. 
In the case State v. Harris, the court held that the defendant unambiguously asked for an attorney and therefore the information derived from, from subsequent questioning was inadmissible. So it doesn't even have to be an outright, it can be a, I think I want to talk to my attorney. I think I'd like to talk to somebody. Uh, they can be very vague at times. Uh, those requests, but we have to take them seriously. So this holding is compatible with the Fifth and Sixth Amendments, which guarantee the accused right to have the assistance of counsel for his or her defense. So here's the scope of the Sixth Amendment. Uh, the Sixth Amendment right to counsel has been extended to the following. The interrogation phase of a criminal investigation, obviously, the trial itself, sentencing, and at least an initial appeal of any conviction. So it just continues to, 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 uh, to stay with them through the process, long past some think, when that right drops off. Supreme Court case law indicates that the Sixth Amendment right to counsel attaches when judicial proceedings have begun against the suspect by means of preliminary hearing, indictment, information, arraignment, or formal charging. So this includes any proceedings that take place subsequent to the charging of an individual. Uh, and for our purposes, the charging process starts with a probable cause statement. Uh, and those are very important. They kind of differ. Some differ. Some are more lengthy in different jurisdictions. Some just want as, as little information as you can put in there because that's uh, public information that's going to reach the papers as well. Both the Fifth and Sixth Amendments to the Constitution involve the right to counsel, obviously, and in, in, in both from a kind of a different angle. And uh, they sometimes overlap, and there's several differences uh, still between these rights. All right, we're going to stop there with the conversation, the lecture with Mark today, and we're going to move forward from here. I hope you got something out of that and enjoyed that. I know you had to have because he makes it so easy and he breaks it down so easy. So I, the, what we're going to go, where we're going to go with the rest of this training, I don't know yet. Uh, time will tell, and and we can we'll we'll see what we use. Uh, but this the whole. The whole thing is going to be an online course at some point, but I'm taking parts of it that I think that would benefit you now, and we're using it for the audio uh, portion. And, and so, you know, we want to give this stuff away for free as much as we can, and then once it gets uh, rotated down and into the video uh, portion and go on to a uh, the online course, then it'll be, a, be available in the online course section. But I'm going to give you as much as I can that is good for audio, and that way you can learn something more there for no cost. So remember, if you've not subscribed to the show, please do that. Leave a rating and review. Share it with your friends. Get other people to listen to the show. Um, introduce them to the show so that we can hit that half a million download mark in 2018. I think that would be fantastic. And, you know, as we get closer here in, in November, closer and closer to Thanksgiving, then we need to be thinking more about what we're thankful for and to be a blessing to others and to make a sparkle and a shine in somebody else's life. I think that means a whole lot, not only to you, but also to the people around you too. So find a way to be a blessing. Always bless somebody. It doesn't matter if you're left or if you're right, if you're in the center, if you believe in one thing or believe in another, we're all on the same team. We're all have the same job. We need to put our differences aside and we need to just get along. Okay. We are all going to have differences, but we should not let that interfere with our job. Okay. So here's what we are. We are all on the same team doing the same job. So bless the people around you, regardless if you believe in them politically, religiously, socially, that's irrelevant. They're human beings and they need to be blessed. So until next week, everyone, please be a blessing. But above all, above all in this dangerous world, 
Be safe. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSBN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.